0: Hello and welcome to episode two of The Other Half. I'm Anna Hench. I am
1: an assistant professor of mathematics at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm Annie Roram, and I am a policy associate at Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service at University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. Woo! That's so hard when we introduce ourselves. I
0: know. I know. We're getting better, though. I tell you what.
1: Yep. Episode two. Rolling right along. What are we talking about, Anna? Tell us.
0: Today we want to talk about a favorite summer pastime of you and I and people the world over, namely summer travel in the form of the Great American Road Trip.
1: Yes, indeed. The Great American Road Trip. You have been on a road trip of yourself, but actually not on the road. You've been in the air quite a bit recently, haven't you, Anna?
0: It's true. I have almost circumnavigated the globe this summer. I've made it as far to the Pacific Ocean on the Hong Kong side and then back to the Pacific Ocean on the California side where I am reporting to you from right now. But I'm not going to cross the ocean. I think this is enough. I'm ready to go home.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so in the air, it's really easy to optimize your travel, right? Like it's really easy to fly from point to point automatically, right? That's the way air travel more or less works. You, you kind of pick a, a flight path and stick with it. But road trips are a little bit harder to make sure that you're taking the shortest distance between two areas or between two landmarks because roads are not always built between landmarks, right? Sometimes you take the meandering path. Sometimes you intentionally take the meandering path. Sometimes you try to figure out, okay, maybe if I take these back roads instead of the internet, I'm actually going to shave off two miles of my trip, even though I'm adding on some time, right? Everybody's always trying to game the system a little bit. Right, like
0: like those secret people who always know the route that's better than the GPS. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. They toss the GPS out the window, and, you know, I don't actually trust those individuals, but this is what Waze does, right? Waze likes to tell you all these funny little routes. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that we have we have a definitive answer on how to optimize the great American road trip. So everybody can rest easy and just do some math and get over it and get their, get their itinerary set and just get cracking. Awesome. Well, this sounds like fun. Please tell me about it. I myself did not come up with this <laughs> with this optimal solution. Randy Olson, in fact, did. And I'm going to let Randy introduce himself to you.
2: My name is Randy Olson, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: Randy is not only a postdoctoral researcher, but he's also a fairly avid blogger. And several months ago, he played around with optimizing, so in other words, um, figuring out the best possible way to, in the shortest possible time, find Waldo. In a Where's Waldo book, in fact, in the whole Where's Waldo canon, and he wrote about this on his blog.
0: That's amazing because I always feel like I waste too much time finding Waldo. What? <laughs> the time <laughs> we would We're have preparing. back in
1: our lives, I'm telling you, if we knew exactly
0: oh, where to gosh, find the Waldo. minutes.
1: <laughs> minutes indeed. So he was approached because of this blog because of this post that he had put up by Tracy Stotter from Discovery News, who said, you know, where's Waldo? We, we care about finding Waldo, but I bet you could apply some of the ideas that you use to shed some light on the Waldo problem to compute the optimal American road trip. And he said, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I can do. So that's what he did. He computed the Optimal American Road Trip. Now, he had a few kind of limitations or boundaries. He asked Tracy from Discovery News, Tracy Statter from Discovery News, to identify to him the landmarks that would make up the Optimal American Road Trip. So he had 50 landmarks to hit in the lower 48 states. It wasn't kind of a willy-nilly meandering road trip. It was a we've got places to go and people to see kind of road trip. So landmarks included things like the White House in Washington, D.C., or the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, or Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. So, you know, kind of like big name landmarks.
0: I'm surprised he picked the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia and not like Heinz Field. Pittsburgh. But that's okay. I'll I'll let it slide.
1: <laughs> well, you know what? I think we're just going to have to keep keep pushing Pittsburgh as the as the really preeminent city, but the Liberty Bell it is. So, he has these 50 landmarks. This is where things start to get mathematical. Because if you have 50 landmarks, you have lots of potential segments to your trip. In fact, you've got as he describes it, 2,500 segments or landmark to landmark distances that you need to deal with, right? 50 times 50. We know it's a little bit less than that. It's in fact, less than half of that because we know, you and I, that the distance between the White House and the Liberty Bell is the same as the distance between the Liberty Bell and the White House, right? So we can actually kind of cut out half of those, but we've still got 1,250 landmark to landmark distances. So we're already, you know, having to kind of juggle a lot of ideas of where we should start and where we should go next in our head. But it gets even more complicated than that, really, because now we need to figure out the shortest way to get from point to point and the shortest way to order all those points so that you're driving the fewest number of miles. And this, as it turns out, is a really classical problem in mathematics. And you may have even heard of this problem, Anna. Do you have a sense of... Oh, I know. I know what it is. Tell me.
0: (laughs) I think it's called the traveling salesman problem. It's called the traveling salesman. I have to tell you, the only reason I knew that answer was because I'm at a math conference right now, and I was telling someone about my summer travels, and they laughed at me and asked me if I was looking for a solution to the traveling salesman problem. Well, there you go. This
1: is (laughs) exactly... little math humor for you. Well, so let's, let's uh, hear Randy talk a little bit about the traveling salesman problem and, and why it's a little bit complicated to solve.
2: Really what this problem is, what we're solving at the core is called the traveling salesman problem. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very well-known problem in computer science and mathematics where we have a list of locations we want to get to, and we want to find the shortest path to travel to all of them at, at only once right? Uh, without backtracking or anything like that. And the reason why it's so hard is because the more cities you add, the more possible paths you can take as, a, as you're traveling through, right? So once you get up to about 50 or so paths, oh my gosh, I forget the exact number, but it's, it's, a, it's a huge number of possible paths that you can then take through, uh, you know, to, to hit all these cities. And so, you know, if we wanted to take the simplest way of, of you know making sure we found the absolute best path, we would have to basically brute force and go through every single possible combination um, and of course that's that's the, the dumb way of doing it.
1: Randy explains that there are a ton of possible combinations, you know, tons of different ways for you to order all of these landmarks and for you to travel between them. In fact, it's something like three times ten to the sixty-fourth number of possible routes that you'd need to check out one at a time. So for a little bit of context, well, let me let Randy take this one for one more moment for him to explain how long that might take. In my
2: article, I always use very exaggerated ways of describing it, you know, that like this yeah, the sun would burn away the earth before we would solve this problem if we did it some way, you know?
1: So this problem takes a really long time to solve, even if you sick supercomputers on it. You know what I mean? So there's really no... We've just sucked all the fun out of this blog post, right? If we're trying to solve the absolute very best way to get between all these landmarks, nobody's ever going to go on this road trip because everybody will have died, you know, and be dead dead (laughs) and gone for millions of years, and nobody will be ever... able to optimize the the route between the Liberty Bell, Mount Rushmore, and the White House among 47 other destinations. So what we need to do is get pretty close, right? What we should probably do is just think about a solution that's pretty good, pretty close. And we're going to do this trade-off between exactness and length of time it takes to find the answer, And there are various algorithms that will help us do that. And so I'm going to pitch you one right now. This is not the one that Randy is going to use, but it's going to help us understand the one Randy uses. So this is called the, the Hill Climber algorithm. And it's super intuitive. Think about it like this. Take those 50 landmarks. Pick a route between
0: them. I want to do my favorite route for finding Waldo, which is starting at the top corner in Maine and going across Uh, the top and down one and over and down one and over, which is like the worst. Okay,
1: so (laughs) so this is is my Waldo finding. It sounds perfect. And then we'll we'll just move on over. And we've got some great lakes in there we're going to have to avoid and then keep going. Fine.
0: Yeah. Well, if we went strictly by latitude, I guess we'd go Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, New York, Michigan...
1: <laughs> Wisconsin, Michigan? Wisconsin, Wisconsin's next to Michigan. So fine. Is do, it? Are you sure? You know so so Illinois. If we're doing whatever. that, <laughs> maybe it is Illinois. Man, this is bad, Anna. We've just alienated half of our listeners. <laughs> well, you know what? This is this is not a so joke think about I'm it. Obsessed. shouldn't the next stop after New York? Wouldn't we be better off instead of trying to? stay on the exact same latitude, just notching down and going to Pennsylvania next, even though in theory that's like on the next row. So that's an improvement that we can make, Yeah, right? Just one small change already improves us. And the Hill Climber algorithm says, okay, just keep making small improvements. Take a step, take a step, take a step until you've reached the best possible route that you can find. In other words, until you can't make any more improvements on the route. So that's like a pretty good way of going about this but you're still not guaranteed to find a particularly short route because it kind of is contingent on the initial route that you chose. So an alternate solution is called the genetic algorithm, and this allows us to keep a couple more routes. In fact, I believe it's up to about 100, in Randy's case, in mind, and try to improve on the set of all these routes as opposed to just a single route at a time.
2: So the idea behind the genetic algorithm is, well, let's keep multiple solutions of these going at a time uh, so we can sort of play with many ideas at once, right? So it's actually very similar to hill climbers, but just on a grander scale.
1: And in fact, Randy has a background in biology as well as computer science. And the genetic algorithm, as you might guess, has a biological basis or foundation. The idea is that it kind of mimics the process of natural selection, in that we're trying to always keep those things that improve on the generation before, and let the things that aren't an improvement die off. So this is exactly what Randy did. He applied this genetic algorithm to these 50 landmarks, and instead of it taking so long that the sun burned away the earth and all the computers in the world crashed and nobody ever got to go on this road trip. (laughs) He says it took him about five minutes to come up with the best possible solution that he felt this algorithm could churn out. It churns out something slightly different, contingent on how you kind of set it up initially, what the random set is initially but he's getting pretty close, right? So I'm so I'm dying to know, how long does it take? How long does the full road trip take? It's about 13,000 miles, a little bit over. Now, how long it actually takes now. It's going to depend on traffic. <laughs> That's his his responses. I went by miles, not by hours. But he did a pretty good job and in fact, some other mathematicians checked out his work and it held up under scrutiny.
2: Well, so I don't think anyone ever double-checked me for the Where's Waldo solution, but for the road trip solution, there was actually a a fairly well-renowned professor uh, that followed up, and he he used his algorithm to to actually, well, him and actually multiple people um, followed up uh, to to optimize this road trip as well. And it turns out I was one very small variation off. There was a place, I think it was in, I think it was a, a move somewhere around Indiana where... If we took a different route, it would be about 20 miles shorter. You know, so I was like, all right, you know, I mean, I said that we weren't getting the absolute best solution. But still, I mean, I said that we'd get a pretty good one. I didn't expect that it would be 20 miles off of the optimum, you know, considering the the fact that, you know, I gave the thing five minutes to run and you know this is a trip of huge magnitude right it's driving a circle around the united states so having 20 miles on is nothing
1: that's pretty impressive i got to say and and the actual the actual distance it's thir- it's bigger than 13000 it's 13699 miles of driving so to be off by only 20 under an- another algorithm that's you know getting used to for a double check i mean he's doing pretty well here so i mean that that's like 10 trips to Dunkin' Donuts yeah. on, on route, right?
0: That's all that, is. That's all that I would, is. I would make up with I would I would surpass 20 miles worth of
1: coffee breaks. That's exactly it. That's <laughs> I like the way I like the way you're thinking about this. That's right. You've got the right road trip mindset here, Anna. You're, you're coming at it like an experienced veteran. <laughs> so if you're interested in learning a little bit more about the full list of landmarks or how to get between them. Uh, you can check out the link to his blog on our website, theotherhalf.acmescience.com. And let me just go on and say one last thing about this. I think this is the big the big message that I'm taking away. Math is good for planning road trips, right? This is one kind of mathematical feature to the conversation here. But I think the other big lesson that I took away from this conversation is sometimes good math is approximate. Sometimes you don't get an exact answer, but finished is better than great. Finished is better than perfect. This is math that gets used and can get used in daily life, and it wasn't perfect, and nobody made any claims that this was the single, solitary, only right answer, and yet it was extremely high-quality good math. So sometimes good math is approximate.
0: I think that's fantastic. And I think that you, me, and Randy should go on this road trip. I think it'd be a lot
1: of fun. Well, here's here's the thing that he told me at the very end. He said, you know, these guys set a Guinness Book of World Records record for hitting all the 48 contiguous states in the fastest amount of time. But they were just kind of eyeballing it. So wouldn't it be interesting to optimize a road trip that... Whose only goal is to just get you into and out of all those forty-eight states as fast as possible.
0: I think that it would be interesting, and you would definitely want to have law enforcement on your side. <laughs> so pay, pay your PBA dues or whatever.
1: That's the road trip that you and I will go on. That will be a good one. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Annie. That's awesome. My pleasure, Anna.
0: And now we'll have a little... Now we'll come in with more. Now, Annie. Anna. You have just told me a wonderful story about a road trip. And it all sounds really fantastic, but I know that there's some secret anxiety niggling at you right now Do you that you just can't get over. got me. I know. You got me. I know that as a daughter of the state of New Jersey, there's one component of this road trip that has you just a little outside your comfort zone. What is that? It is the pumping of my own petrol Anna. So this is a weird thing that in the state of New Jersey and I think in like Oregon, somewhere on the west coast, there are two states where it is illegal to pump your own gas, which is always so bizarre to me because the only logical conclusion I can draw is that it's too dangerous to pump your own gas, which means that my state of Pennsylvania is just,
1: <laughs>
0: what, they don't care for my life or what? <laughs> or maybe maybe they assume the denizens of New Jersey are just too irresponsible. <laughs> Who knows what the actual reason is? Who knows? Who knows? But the point is there's some kind of implicit danger in pumping gas. Right, there is. Right? So, And also there's implicit danger depending how you pump the gas. So there are certain ways that you can pump gas that are safer than mm-hmm. others. So for example, there are a few things that you know you shouldn't do while oh, you're pumping gas. Um,
1: I know one. I should not have my engine running while I'm pumping gas. That's an easy one. Yes,
0: you should not have your engine running. Yep. There's another easy one also. What else
1: should you not do? Oh, shouldn't that be driving? Oh. <laughs> shouldn't be driving. That would have been... I should not be Smoking a cig while I'm pumping gas.
0: It's true. Indeed, you shouldn't be smoking a cigarette while you're doing anything.
1: Ever. PSA. But definitely,
0: (laughs) definitely don't be smoking a cigarette while you're pumping gas. Some people and some gas stations say you shouldn't be talking on your cell phone while you pump gas because I guess there's some electrical current that'll zig through your body and into the gas tank. I'm slightly dubious of that one. And there's this other weird warning that shows up on some gas pumps and not others, that says that you're not supposed to re-enter your car while pumping gas. Hmm. So this one is curious to me because it's not uniform, right? I grew up in the state of Vermont where it's very, very cold. And if you're pumping gas, you want to re-enter because it's cold and you don't want to stand out there. But imagine you're also wearing a heavy down coat. Right, So when you re-enter your car and you slide along the seat, you're generating some static electricity. So conceivably, you might get out of the car again, grab for the gas pump, a zing bolt of electric current will zig from your finger into your gas tank and explode the whole thing. It's starting a gasoline fire, an explosion, and thus ending your life.
1: Conceivable. Conceivable. It, there's, there's Conceivable. <laughs>
0: Conceivable, indeed. Right. Okay. So this is a conceivable kind of hypothetical situation. Don't you just want to quantify it?
1: As I do with most things in life, I would like to know exactly what risk I'm taking on when I, when I choose my, my day-to-day actions. As do I. And I've often thought about quantifying this risk
0: and recently stumbled upon a fantastic blog post by a fantastic blogger, named Laura McClay, who writes the blog Punk Rock Operations Research, and she actually computed the conditional probability of blowing yourself up while pumping gas, given that you re-enter your car. First, let me let Laura McClay introduce herself to you.
3: My name is Laura McClay, and I'm an associate professor of industrial and systems engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
0: Laura McClay also noticed that this non-uniform warning about entering or re-entering your car while pumping gas was a little bit, she couldn't tell if it was like something alarmist or something real or what the actual danger
3: was in that. Are explosions really happening? I mean, people used to smoke everywhere and put out extinguished cigarettes and like closing my door just doesn't seem to register. So what she wanted to do was not just compute the probability of blowing
0: yourself up, but compute the conditional probability of blowing yourself up while pumping gas, given that you re-enter your car. So it's a way of teasing out correlations and false correlations for things. So first, let me just let Laura tell you what her thoughts were on the gas situation. And there may be a bit of a spoiler in here as to what she finally
3: decided. Right. So a lot of the times you're, you just report like, oh, here's the number of times there was uh, a fire or an explosion caused at pumping gas. But it doesn't look at what's your conditional probability, given that you're doing something. And so usually um, or sometimes there are warnings about not going back in your car. I guess the idea of opening and closing your door could create a spark if it's dry out and that could increase the probability this is a rare event to start, but it's not clear, you know, the conditional pr- probability of exploding given you go back in your car, which I totally do, and I'm not stopping. Um. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, so Laura McClay is obviously really skeptical of this idea of blowing up while pumping gas, given that you re-enter your car. So what she did was she found an actual bank of numbers and did an actual computation on this. So what she found was this data set that was published by the Petroleum Equipment Institute, the PEI, and they published this data set all about uh, gasoline fires that have occurred over the last seven years, and she actually put this data together to come up with a number. So you can, actually, she actually can hand you a number of how likely this is to happen. So what she found in this data set, the data set has taken over seven years, and over seven years, there were 81 gasoline fires. Which of is any kind really small. Of any kind. So Yeah, that is really small. That's not very many. It's really small. She suspected that the data was incomplete for the past, for like the old stuff. So what she did was said, let's just pretend it's over two years, right? So instead of over seven, let's pretend it's over two. This is okay. gonna speak to your uh, math as approximation from the previous segment. <laughs> yes. So let's say over two years, there are 81 gasoline fires. Okay. Okay. So the first thing she noticed, or first thing she wanted to point out, was how rare it is to experience a gasoline fire at all. Like, what's the base probability? So imagine how many refuelings occur over two years. Do you have a ballpark guess? I couldn't even guess it.
1: I'm thinking that... I'm thinking of that number that Randy Olson mentioned, 3 times 10 to the 64th, probably less than that, but probably, <laughs> probably probably a fair fair number, given the number of cars on the road. And we're just talking in the United States, right? In the United States. Yeah, I, to be yeah. honest, I wouldn't even wager a guess, a lot. Okay, so Laura estimated that it
0: was probably about $24 billion. So less than 3 times 10 to the 64th, but <laughs> so a fair number. Well, just a few orders of magnitude less. So, if you consider 81 fires over 24 billion refuelings, that's a probability of 3.37 times 10 to the negative ninth, which is a really, 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 really small number, and which is about 1 in 300 million. Yeah. Those are the odds 1 in 300 million of being involved in a gasoline fire at all. Forget
1: whether you enter or re enter. 1 in 300 million. So, so to put it in perspective, there are a little bit over 300 million people that live in the United States. So one out of the 2010 census is like a 310 million. So yeah.
0: the odds of winning the Powerball jackpot are maybe one in 250 million. So you're more likely <laughs> to win the Powerball jackpot than you are to explode in a gasoline fire okay. at all. Right. So forgetting, don't even think about whether or not you're re-entering, or smoking or leaving your engine running or anything like that. <laughs> All right, well, so we could almost stop there, but let's keep going. We can almost stop there, but let's see how, let's just flirt with danger a little bit and see how much worse it can get. So the breakdown of these fires was that um, of the 81, 20 of the fires started before fueling even began, 29 of them involved re-entry into the car, 15 of them came after the fact and did not involve re-entry. And 17 of them were uncategorized, so it was unclear from the data whether the person re-entered or not. So let's take that 29 and 17, and let's say in 46 cases, people re-entered and a fire happened. I'm not going to say the re-entry caused the fire, but let's say in 46 instances, there was both re-entry and fire. Now we have all the material we need to compute the conditional probability of having a fire given that you re-enter the car.
1: I think, by the way, it's super important that you didn't talk about that being causal. (laughs) That's really, we're not, this is not causal, this is correlational, but it is conditioned on re-entry, which is a good framing for it.
0: So remember, our probability of exploding while refueling was 3.37 times 10 to the negative 9th. Our probability of exploding given re-entry is 4.22 Times 10 to the negative ninth, and our probability given not re-entering goes down to 1.65 times 10 to the negative 9th. So there is an increase in your probability of exploding given that you re-enter, and there is a decrease of exploding given that you don't re-enter, which is not surprising given that there were 81 fires and we're allowing 46 of them to be related to re-entry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But the final story is that a probability of 4.22 times 10 to the negative ninth is still something to the order of one in 250 million. That's still a really, really small number.
1: That's. Gosh, you are as likely to win the Powerball lottery as you are to experience a gas explosion in your car, given that you've reentered your car while fueling.
0: So Laura McClay also ran some other interesting numbers and determined that if you think about how many miles per gallon you get in a car, you're actually, statistically, more likely, or probabilistically, more likely to die driving to the gas station than you are pumping gas. So driving around your car is way more dangerous than pumping gas. And there are like a million things you should be more afraid of than blowing up in a gasoline fire. For example, getting eaten by a shark, getting struck by lightning, etc., <laughs> etc. Cetera, et cetera. So on the, on the uh, hierarchy of things you should be fearful of, this is very low. Does that make does that make you feel better? <laughs> it does make me feel better. So this is I think this is kind of a a f- funny discussion. I mean, we're being a little bit glib here, but it's a worthwhile and interesting inquiry in the sense of using probability and statistics for public safety, right? So how do you convince the public that something is dangerous or not dangerous? And how do you incentivize people to act accordingly by using the power of numbers?
3: It's really interesting how you communicate these risks to people. Um, And some people in my field have looked at this in terms of management science, and how do you manage people with these kind of very rare but catastrophic events. And Some of the work is really interesting because sometimes the risks, you know, this conditional probability is really high. Like given that there's a hurricane and you're kind of in its path, you know, there are some real risks there and they're potentially catastrophic. And, And what happens if people ignore your warnings and then they survive it? They're like, whoa, now they could definitely not, maybe they'll put themselves in harm's way again. You know, it's this constant challenge. And the better you do at managing the risks, the harder it is to communicate and to get people to be on the same page. Absolutely. And here's what I want to know, actually. These gas
1: stations that do put up a sign saying, don't re-enter your car while fueling, do the numbers back up a posting of that sign? Or is it a little bit fear-mongering to post that sign? given the extraordinarily low likelihood that you will increase the chance of a fuel fire by re-entry or
0: the flip side of that are there so few fires from re-entry because those signs exist right what we still don't know is whether or not it's dangerous so even though we're being a little bit funny here and saying that it's you're you're like really 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 not going to blow yourself up pumping gas it's a difficult question to ask. What is what is statistically improbable because it's just not going to happen? And what's statistically improbable because we have the proper prevention in place to keep it from happening? And this is, this is where the world of operations research, I think, gets so interesting and so critical
1: to our everyday lives and safety. I agree. I think it's also an interesting question to ask. At what point do the statistics convince individuals to put proper mechanisms in place for the purpose of safety and how do we find that line? At what point is probability so so low that an ill effect will occur that we don't do anything about it at all? We say we're just going to take that risk. Right. When is it? Sometimes it's less costly to just Absolutely. take the risk. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So it, I had a, such a fun conversation with Laura and of course I couldn't resist. I had to ask her about her own gas pumping practices. And of course, I had to ask her about her own summer road trip
3: plans. I'm working on that. I'm thinking about exploring Wisconsin a little bit more. This is I've been here two years, and I think it would be fun to just see what all that Wisconsin has to offer. I'm getting there. So I might be doing an optimal road trip. So I was actually plotting out yeah, wineries and cheese places and kind of the typical things to visit. I did actually try to make an optimal tour. Of course. What else would I do?
0: So there you have it. Laura McClay is going to go on an optimal road trip, and she's going to pump her own gas and maybe reenter.
1: How about you? What are you going to do? I'll, I'm re-entering for sure. Whether or not I'm pumping my own gas depends on who I'm with, of course, and whether or not I travel home for, for some visits to my folks in Jersey, because, of course, there are individuals who will... Do it for me in the fine state of New Jersey. And you? For me, this
0: conversation is purely for leisure since I have no car.
1: I love it. Well, we owe some thank yous to Laura McClay and to Randy Olson for enlightening us on these topics that are so relevant to summer plans. So thank you, Randy. And thank you, Laura.
0: And we'll have links to all of their stuff on our website, which is theotherhalf.acmescience.com. We hope you'll stop by there. And we also want to thank our executive producer, Samuel Hansen, for making us sound so good.
1: And thank you, our listeners, for hanging with us for yet another conversation about math and real life. We look forward to chatting with you again soon. Have safe travels.
2: Nice!